We continue the shear in Navi, Hebrew history. Last part of the story told about how Shoal, Hamelach, King Shoal, had failed in his mission to eradicate, wipe out Amalek completely. Because of this, Shmuel Hanavi told him that he had lost his rights to royalty. He will no longer be king of the Jews, neither he nor his descendants. This had brought down the wrath, the anger of Hashem. And now Hashem said to Shmuel Hanavi, Go immediately to the house of Yishai, and there you will select Yishai's son, anoint him as the king of the Jews. King meaning that the moment that Shoal HaMelech will pass away, Yishai's son will become king, will succeed him. The Torah says that Shmuel HaNavi was told this as an order. Hashem commanded him to go. Yet Shmuel HaNavi replied to Hashem, I'm afraid. How can I go? If I go to the house of Yishai to anoint his son as king, if King Shoal hears about this, he'll kill me. How can I go if my life is in danger? The Gemara says very strange because Hashem commanded him. Hashem says go, that means Hashem will be with him. What risk was he taking? What possible danger could there be for him? And yet the Gemara says that Hashem's answer was, you are right. There is danger if he finds out. And therefore what you should do is take along an animal for a sacrifice, offer a sacrifice in that city. So it will look as though you came there to bring up a sacrifice instead of going there for the true purpose that you intended. Now why was Shmuel Hanavi afraid when the Gemara says that a person going on a mission, performing a mitzvah, is certain that he'll be successful, that nothing can befall him, no danger, no misfortune can befall him. Shluch mitzvah einam nizokin. No harm can come to one who's on a mission of a mitzvah. The Gemara's answer is that if the place is a place where danger is prevalent, there's definite risk, a hazard at that place, then even the mitzvah itself cannot protect him. A person is not allowed to go into a fire and say, I'm wearing tefillin, I'll be saved. If there's a definite danger present, then the mitzvah will not protect him, and it is his duty to see to it that he does not jeopardize his own life. And that's what Hashem said to Shemuel the prophet, you are right, we must teach this lesson that though you're performing a mitzvah, you're fulfilling the actual command of Hashem, still it is wrong to go to a place where there is definite danger involved. So he finally went. He came to the house of Yishai. Yishai was very happy to see Shmuel the prophet. Yishai was one of the outstanding people, not just of that generation, but of all time. Yimara says that Yishai was one of the four people who never committed the tiniest sin in his lifetime. And therefore, if we say, if we say that a person dies because of a sin that is committed, Yishai should have lived forever. So that Yishai's death was due only to the fact that death was decreed upon mankind when the serpent committed the act of causing Adam and Chava to sin with the tree of wisdom. And this brought down a gezerah decree from Hashem that no person will live forever, each person must die. That incident was what caused Yishai's death. So pure was Yishai. Uh, Yishai had eight sons. Shmuel the prophet came into his house. He had not been told which son to anoint. He decided that he would judge for himself. So he asked Yishai, bring me your son. Son meaning the best one you have. Yishai brought out the oldest one. His name was Eliav. 
And Shmuel looked at him and he said, this must be the one, because he too, like King Shoal, was tall, very good looking, very impressive looking. And he said, this must be the one, and Hashem said to Shmuel the prophet, this is not the one. In fact, this one Hashem despises. Does not say Hashem does not consent to his becoming king. Hashem does not want him. It says Hashem despises him. Because Hashem said, you can only see with your eyes. A person can see with his eyes and no further. Hashem can see what's doing in the heart. This was a sharp retort aimed at Shmuel the prophet, the Gemara says, because Shmuel the prophet, when he met Shaul Hamelach, King Shaul at the original time, when he first met him, asked, where is the seer? Where is the Navi? Shmuel the prophet answered, I am the Chazer. I am the Navi. I am the one that sees. Hashem said, that's not the way to state it. This sounds like, it isn't of course, but it sounds like gaiva, like conceit. And therefore, I'll show you that you say you are the seer, you cannot see. Here is a case where you think you see the proper one to be chosen as king, and yet you don't. Because this first son of Ishai, Hashem does not want him, and more so Hashem despises him. What was wrong with the son of Ishai that was so bad that Hashem actually despised him? The answer is that he possessed one quality, one trait of character that is so evil in the eyes of Hashem that not just Hashem dislikes it, but Hashem despises it. That is the characteristic of kas, anger, hot temper. This is something that is so evil that Hashem says, I do not want this person in my proximity. I don't want this person close to me. It is an evil that is so dangerous, so destructive. Abenazal speaks about this, the result that through Kas, though the Gemara says that it's equivalent to idol worship, more so, when a person goes into a fit of temper, he actually rends asunder, tears apart his own neshama, destroys his own neshama to the point where even when he does a mitzvah subsequently, the mitzvah is not even absorbed by his neshama. The mitzvah goes to waste. It is given away to the wrong ends. Until that person does tshuva, he repents for this curse. Repents means that he definitely resolves not to go into this temper again. For this reason, we see that Eliyah, the son of Yishai, the firstborn, Bukhar, still, he was at a point where Hashem despised him because of this quality of Kas. So, Shmuel Hanavi asked Yishai to send out his second son. He did this. He paraded seven sons before him. Each one, he was told, this is not the one. And he asked, is there anyone else? Yishai said, I have one more son, the youngest. He's out in the field. I shall summon him. It was then that King David came before Shmuel Hanavi, and he saw in front of him a youth, very bright-eyed, ruddy, reddish complexion. Reddish, well, that might not be a compliment. The Zohar Kodesh says, why does the Torah use Admoni, reddish? Some might like the color, red hair, but for a man, why use that term? The Zohar Kodesh says, because this was simply meant to imply that the base, the foundation, and the fount of evil, the most evil person that ever existed, from which came forth Amalek, Edom, the destruction of the Holy Temple, was Esau, who was called Red Edom, when he was born. And here, King David came out as the one to combat Esau's evil forces. That is why he was called Admoni, and that's why he was a king in whose time there was no peace. He went out to battle all the enemies of the Jews, until 
there was peace for his descendants. In the time of King Solomon, there was peace already. In the time of Mashiach ben David, there shall be peace that journey. And so he saw that his, his brightness, his alertness, his purity, that he was the one that Hashem chose. And Hashem said immediately, this is the one, anoint him, and he was anointed as the future king. So at this time that suddenly the spirit of Hashem left King Shaul, he went into these depressive moods, sadness, marashara. He felt so badly that to elevate himself, to ease himself out of this evil despair, he asked for someone to come to play a musical instrument. The power of Nagina music can soothe the nerves and soothe the soul. They suggested there is that Yishai has a son, King David. Note we say the word King David because just as you're not allowed to call a rabbi by his name alone, especially to the king of the Jews, the eternal king of the Jews, because even Mashiach, the son of King David, will still be the son of the actual <coughs> king. So we should always use the word David Hamelach or King David rather than just his name alone. So he was summoned to come before King Shaul, and he played the instrument, the kino, which is a violin or a harp. In this manner, he soothed the nerves of King Shaul. Each time that he got into one of these moods of despair, he was called to play before him. However, he did not stay in the palace continually. He was there only at certain intervals, and then he would go back home to his father to tend the cattle. Here again, the Zorah Kodesh says, Note that the great tzaddikim, fathers of the Jews, were so great and so holy, king of the Jews, King David, instead of it being written about them that they sat in the yeshiva, or studied Torah, or they worked on raising money for charity, they would go out and tend cattle. They were shepherds. Moshe Rabbeinu too, also says he went to tend the cattle of his father-in-law. Of course, there are deep secrets involved in this Indian, this topic of tending cattle, as in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu, Zarek Kodesh says that these cattle contained the souls of the future students of Moshe Rabbeinu. He purified these cattle to a point where they became later his Talmidim. That is, they evolved into Gilgal, into his Talmidim humans. Well, this is a it's like creation, to bring, to elevate cattle to a point of humans. It's a deep topic. We will not penetrate that any further now. We hope to discuss it at some later date. Now, at this time, King David was at home. Suddenly, the Philistines mobilized their armies. The Philistines were always the worst enemies of the Jews and the most powerful in the military sense. They gathered their armies, and they now faced each other, the Jews in a sort of a semi-helpless state compared to the armies of the Philistines, but willing to do battle. They had the courage. And they were on one side, on, um, on a hilly top, a mountain top, the Philistines opposite them also on a high range. The center was no man's land, where they would both come charging into this battle. These battles were always face-to-face -face confrontations. And this no man's land moment was empty, vacant, ready for the charge. Suddenly, out of the ranks of the Philistines came forth a giant, dressed from head to foot, very heavy armor plate. He walked down to the center of the area, the arena of battle, alone, and he faced the forces of the Jews. And he spoke up in a loud, booming voice. His name was Goliath. He used the term in English, Goliath. I'm sure he never heard of that name. He was never called that. His name was Goliath. Goliath Haplishti. He was a giant. He 
His height was 13 feet 6 inches. He'd make some basketball player. But this giant, this evil giant, is very powerful and very fierce looking. It is important to know his background. First, let's see his statement, then we'll find out who he really was. An amazing revelation in the Gemara about him. He walked out and he spoke to the Jews in a very authoritative tone. He said to them, speaking logically, there's a sense of these two vast armies and peoples coming out to battle each other, each one seeking a victory. The end of the battle will be that the victor will have lost large numbers of soldiers, of fathers, sons, husbands. What is the sense of that? They will then conquer the other nation. They'll become slaves to the victor. Why not settle the battle in a bloodless manner? Just one person alone, Goliath alone, challenged the Jews to offer. One single Jew came out and faced him in battle. Winner take all. A battle to the death between these two. The winner will mean that his side will have taken as slaves the entire opposition. But this did not entail courage or heroism on the part of a person. Any person would walk out and say, I'm willing to die for my side. Dying alone was not enough. The Jew would walk out and say, I will challenge Goliath and die in this effort. It wasn't just himself that would be put to death. It would mean that he was handing over the entire Jewish people as slaves if he lost this battle. And that's why, this is the reason why Goliath challenged the king, King Shaul himself. You are the tallest, the bravest, the strongest. Come out and face me in battle. And of course, says King Shaul was filled with fear, not because he was afraid to die or afraid to do battle. But if he should lose, it meant that he was handing the Jews over to defeat. Now Goliath, in offering this challenge, first spoke mildly. Then he said, I am not just an ordinary man. I am the one, he said, who had killed both sons of Eli the Kohen Godot, the one who had captured the Holy Ark in this battle, and the one now who challenges the Jews and who also challenges the Jewish faith. And then he spoke against the Jewish religion, against Hashem speaking in very derogatory terms, very insulting remarks. And the reason for this is, the Gemara says, that who was Goliath? Goliath, who was not challenging the Jews, who came out deliberately, despite the Jews, he came out in the morning at exactly the time they were supposed to say Kriyashma. He came out at night, repeating his challenge, also at the time of saying Kriyashma, to show that he defied their faith in Hashem Echad. To find their faith in the Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekinah Hashem Achad, to stop them from saying Kriyashma at exactly the right time. Now there was destined to be a confrontation between Goliath and King David. Why so? Because these two were distantly related. Time, generations back, time when Naomi went to the fields of Moab with her husband, they left the land of Israel, and her husband died. Her two sons married two sisters, the princesses of Moab, Rus and Orpah. Her two sons died, and then she was left alone. She decided to return to Israel. Both of her daughters-in-law, Rus and Orpah, offered to come back with her. She did everything in her power to dissuade them, 
tell them to remain because there was no sense in going back with her since she was impoverished. Rus maintained a steadfast attitude that she wants to continue in the faith she had learned till now. She wants to be a Jew to the death and a Jew after death too. Harpa listened to the words of her mother-in-law and decided to return home back to the king's palace, back to the king of Moab. And so Rus followed Nami to Israel in peace, came in peace, married Boaz, and had, as a descendant, four generations later, King David. Harper went back, and went back on a road alone. On this road home, something happened to her, something very unpleasant. She was attacked by a band of men, wild ruffians, Goyim, of course, and this lasted for a long period of time. It was a total of 100 attackers who molested her, plus, the Gemara says, to add insult to injury, it was also one dog. So that, the Gemara says, here, in hint, the words of Goyas, Goyas was born from that incident. So Goyas was the son of 100 men and one dog. Uh, this is why we find we can understand his statement later on. Meanwhile, Goyas gave this challenge to the Jews every day for a period of 40 days consecutively. 40 consecutive days representing his challenge to the Torah. The Torah was given from Har Sinai for 40 days. At this time, Yishai ordered his son, King David, who was unaware of what's going on, go to the battlefront and bring some food, a food package for your brothers. Also, take something from them. Yor explains what was requested by Ishai, something which played in a very important part later on. It answers many questions later on. He came to the battlefront, and while standing there, he heard this Goyas walk out and offer this challenge. And he was shocked. They started to speak to the soldiers nearby. How does this animal dare to come out and say things like this? Well, does everybody remain silent in a case like that? And they said, what can we do? So he asked, what does the king say? They said, the king says he has an offer of one who will defeat Goyas. King David said, I'm interested. What is his offer? So he offers three things. One, that the one who defeats Goyas will be made very wealthy from the treasuries of the king. Second, he will receive the king's daughter in marriage, marry the princess. Third, his father's home, his family, will be exempt from taxes. King David said, that's a beautiful offer, I'm interested. Just then, his brother Eliov came out and saw King David and began to rant at him. What are you doing here? He said, I came to give you this food package. Eliov said, that's a lie. You came because you like to watch a sport. You want to see a battle. You're interested in seeing action, excitement. You don't belong here. This ranting was proof as to Elio's hot temper. The says shows why Hashem despised him. He also took, so he screamed at King David to leave. King David did leave. He went to a different corner, walked around where he could not be seen by his brothers, and continued to discuss this offer of King Shoal, hinting at that he wants to be brought before King Shoal. He'd like to be the one to challenge Goliath in this battle. By the way, the item 
that Ishai asked King David to bring from his brothers, the Gemara says, was a get. A get is the Hebrew word for divorce. A divorce from their wives. This was a custom then that all those going into battle should leave a divorce at home for the wife so that in case they are missing in action, the wife is not an aguna. Aguna means a possible widow, a widow in doubt. She cannot remarry. She doesn't know if she has a husband or not. Secondly, if she has no children, she'll be spared the very unpleasant ordeal of chalitza or yibum, which means one whose husband dies, she has no children, must marry husband's brother or receive a special type of ritual divorce from him. But if she's divorced from him, from this husband, she avoids all that unnecessary unpleasantness. This is why every soldier going out of this battle had to give this divorce. As I said, it plays an important part later on. Uh, King Shaul heard about King David's questioning his offer, and he wanted King David brought before him. He saw King David, looked at him very closely. He had seen him before playing the music instrument for him, but he never observed him that closely. And he said, you're only a boy. How do you figure you can go out into battle with this giant? Let's be sensible. You're not going out to show what a hero you are, you're going to die in battle. There's no trick to that because you're jeopardizing the entire Jewish nation. What do you base your hope for success? King David said very simply, I base it on the fact that I am a shepherd. I tend my father's cattle. But while tending my father's cattle, I have had a lot of action. Action that may be even more dangerous than facing Goliath. I was attacked by a lion once, and I defeated this lion alone. Afterwards, I had even a more dangerous battle with one who was stronger than a lion, and that is a bear. This is very revealing. The Gemara says this shows that bears are stronger than lions, by the words of King David. And this bear, too, I defeated. I killed. Now, how did I, a boy, succeed in killing a lion and a bear? The answer is obvious. I had Hashem help me. Now, just as Hashem helped me, rescued me from the hands of this lion and bear, and aided me to kill them, so will Hashem assist me in killing this dog. King Shaul thought about it and said, that's very logical. Fine. But I don't want you going out this way. I want you to put on armor plate, dress right, and take the necessary weapons. King David agreed, and he dressed King David with the shield and armor and sword of King Shaul. It was at this point that King Shaul's eyes began to burn, because by a miracle, King Shaul being much taller than King David, by a miracle this armor plate suddenly shrank and fit King David exactly, meaning implying that he was fit to be a king. King Shaul's eyes burned with envy. King David realized this, took the spear, the sword, and he started to move. But as he moved, he said, I can't, I'm rooted to the ground. This is not for me, I'm not fit to wear this armor plate, it's too heavy for me and too good. I cannot wear this into battle. With this he appeased King Shaul. He removed the armor, the sword, the spear. King Shaul said, with what will you enter into battle? He said, I'll select my own weapons. He left, he ran out quickly, and he collected five very smooth 
stones, pebbles, and a slingshot with these pebbles, and he carried a stick with him. And with this he went out to do battle against Goyas. And we find one explanation for this in the Zohar Kodesh. He did kill Goyas with one of those pebbles using the slingshot. If one was enough, why did he take five? What was the, the intent in having exactly five pebbles? Zohar Kodesh answers that King David went out to prove that those words that Goliath used against the Jews in desecrating the Kriya Shema, the Shema Yisrael, those words would destroy Goliath. And so he selected five pebbles, each one standing for a word of the Kriya Shema, five for Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokeinu Hashem. The slingshot the container was Echot. With this, he went out to battle to counteract the evil of Goliath. He took along the cane with him, the stick, to mislead Goliath, thinking into thinking that he was going to use a stick in doing battle against him. He would not look or expect an attack through a slingshot. He came forth on the battlefield and he faced Goliath. Goliath saw King David, a boy, he let out a roar. And he said to him, a boy coming out to me with a stick? You think you're facing a dog? These words, he revealed unwittingly his true nature, his true background. And King David answered him, I come out of... Of course, he started to insult again, to rave against the Jewish faith. King David replied, I come out to you without a sword, without a spear. I come out to you only in the name of Hashem whom you have defiled, whose name you have defiled today, these 40 days. And you're going to see today that the victory is in the hands of Hashem, not in the hands of power or in the hands of military weapons. Today, you are going to die, and all your, your, your cohorts, your armies, are going to fall victim, slaves, to the Jews. When Koyas heard this, he lunged forward, Instead of retreating, King David ran forth, took out one of these stones, placed it in the slingshot, and let fly. Now, Goliath's body was covered with heavy armor plate. It was only the part above his eyes, the forehead, that was bare, and there too was very solid. That's bone structure. A pebble could not do much harm coming from a slingshot. But the Gemara says that the aim was perfect. A stone <coughs> struck directly at the center of the forehead, and at that moment, a leprosy developed in the forehead so that it softened considerably. The pebble sank deeply into whatever is beyond that bone structure, whatever the vacuum was contained in his head, and he fell dead. But to show the concern, the consideration that heaven has for its tzaddik, the Gemara says, the Midrash tells us that King David had to run forward to cut off Goliath's head. Now, to have to bother a tzaddik to run so far, from heaven there was a miracle that Goliath, instead of falling backwards, one who was struck falls backwards. Instead he fell forward, it meant that King David had to run about 26 feet less than he would have had Goliath fallen backwards. 13 feet back and 13 feet forward, with 26 feet of running time, he, sp he was spared, 
he ran over to Goyas, pulled out Goyas's sword, and cut off his head, raised his head up, and marched back to the Jews, and said, this is the head of Goyas, whom we are taking as trophy today. He held it up high, when the Philistines saw this, they were so broken, the morale, that they, instead of just surrendering, they turned tail, began to flee. And with this, the Jews were filled with an urge to defeat in battle, rather than to take prisoners. They pursued the Philistines, and they killed very large numbers of them, also conquering, taking over a lot of these cities that were taken from them previously. And so this entire incident ended with a tremendous victory for the Jews. One setback, of course, was that King Shaul, seeing this, was again filled with a deep fit of jealousy and despair, and that he could not have accomplished this. Here was King David, whom he suspected had some type of either royal blood or some plans to take over the kingdom. So he asked his advisors, his commander-in-chief, his general was Avner, general of King Shaul's army. Avner, the Gemara says, was extremely powerful, was a very great person. In fact, Avner Ben-Ner was Zohar, for those who have visited Israel, visited the city of Hebron, the cave of four couples. Avner is buried directly opposite this cave of four couples, the grave of Avner Ben-Ner. The next to the king there was Avner, and also Doeg, one of the king's advisors. Doeg was an evil person. We'll see later on what part he plays with his evil. They asked Avner, who is this boy? Whose son is he? Of course, he knew him. He knew whose son he was. He had been playing music for him until now. But he wanted to know, is this boy fit to be a king? Does he have the requirements, the family background, becoming king? It was then that Doeg, the evil one, spoke up and said to King Shoal, instead of asking whether he's fit to become king, why don't you ask whether he's fit to be called a Jew? Is he a Jew? King Shoal was interested in this, said, why do you ask that? What evidence do you have to the contrary? He said, well, I know that a child follows a religion of the mother. If there is intermarriage between non-Jew and Jew, the child follows the religion of the mother. In this case, I know that King David comes from the country of Moab. Moab, because his great-great-grandmother was Rus HaMoavi. There's a Pasuk in the Torah that says, Lo Yovo, there cannot come into the ranks of the Jews anyone from the country of Moab. A non-Jew can convert, but Jews cannot accept Moabim as converts. Why? This was a curse placed upon them from heaven, because when the Jews were in the desert, they had asked, pleaded with Moab to give them food and water, and Moab had refused as a punishment. This decree was issued that no Moabi can ever convert into a Jew. So therefore, since he is a descendant of Rusa Moabia, he is not even Jewish. Avner, who was learned too, said, but I recall that there is a statement in the Gemara, mind you, in the Gemara. This, was, this is proof, of course, that the words of the Gemara were given to Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's how they knew these statements. Statement of the Gemara to the effect that when the Pasuk says that no Moabite can convert, 
it says only a Moabite male, but a female is accepted. What is the reason? Because the, the sin, the crime of Moab was that they did not come forth to bring food to the Jewish soldiers there, the Jewish people. This is an act for men only. Women do not go out to greet strangers. So since the men were guilty, not the women, therefore a Moabite woman can be accepted as a Gioris, as a convert. Hence, King David is a legal Jew. Again, Doeg intervened and said, if your statement is true, just because the sentence says Moab, male, in that case, the Torah says, Lo yovo mamzer Hashem, a mamzer, a legal child, cannot become a Jew, cannot be accepted as a Jew to marry a Jewess. Why don't you say that too, that mamzer male only, not mamzeris? For this, Avner answered, the rule of Moab has a reason. It is only the men who committed a crime and therefore women are exempt. Mamzer and mamzeris are the same. There's nothing to, dif- to separate the friendship between the two. So, Doeg said, well, even the reason, the logic you gave is still not sufficient. If the Moab men were guilty in not bringing out food to the Jews, the Moabite women were guilty in not bringing out food to the Jewish women, then you cannot separate between the two either. At this point, Avner remained silent. He had no answer. So Shoal, King Shoal, listening to this discussion, said to Avner, instead of discussing these laws with Doeg, this great Chacham here, go to the Beis HaMedrash, go to the Yeshiva, ask the rabbis of the Sanhedrin, let them determine the answer. And of course the answer is, as the Gemara says, that Rus HaMovia certainly could have converted. The female Moabites were accepted, and King David was legally 100% Jewish, according to this ruling. Now the question was only, will he take over the kingdom? This is what King Shaul feared, and he devised a plan to eliminate King David. Let it be known to him that the king is anxious to have him as a son-in-law. He actually had promised he who destroys Goliath will receive his daughter's hand in marriage, his older daughter Merav. He said, let King David go out and show his prowess, his might in doing battle against the enemy, and then with this he'll deserve to become the son-in-law of the king. This way, King Shaul figured, send him out to the front lines. I wouldn't have to kill him myself, let the enemy do so. And with this, he promised, too, that he would give Merav, his daughter, to King David. David went out to this battle. Meanwhile, Merav, his daughter, was given to Adriel, a different person in marriage. As we explained on Wednesday, the legal aspects were that the Kiddushin, the marriage between King David and Merav, was not valid since it was based upon nothing being given. Kedushim requires a ring or a coin, and here all that was given was just a loan which is intangible, the amount that King Shaul owed to King David, the wealth he had promised. You cannot marry a woman with just a loan. You have to give something tangible, and therefore, since there was no marriage yet, Mera was given to Adriel. At this point, though, King Shaul's second daughter, the younger daughter, Michal, saw King David, and she fell very deeply for him. She desired him very strongly. Michal was tight to bring a parallel. It was like Rachel, the daughter of Kalba Savua. 
It was so pure that when she saw Rabbi Akiva originally, she recognized in him his greatness, was willing to marry him despite the poverty that it would mean for her. Here too, Michal, the daughter of King Shaul, was so pure, so holy, that she could recognize in King David a greatness of a tzaddik that she desired very intensely. And so, she, she brought this to a point where King Shaul would offer her hand a marriage to King David. Again, King Shaul decided to make it difficult, and he said to King David, if you want my daughter Michal, then prove your mettle, prove your worth by bringing me 100 dead bodies from the Philistines. You must invade the land of the Philistines, kill 100 of the enemy, and then be burdened by having to carry back 100 dead bodies. It's much more difficult to carry back those bodies because then you're hampered, you, have, you can't put up a defense against any attackers. King David took his small band of followers, penetrated the lines of the Philistines, and brought back 200 dead bodies to show his ability, to show his desire to become the son-in-law of the king. So greatly was his respect for a Jewish king. One more word about Michal, though. Of course, this did not result in marriage either, as we explained on Wednesday, again due to legal difficulties. Temporarily, that is, Michal was given as a wife to Palti ben Loish. Palti ben Loish was a tzaddik who realized that she was not really his wife. She belonged to King David, and so they were married in name only. They did not have any contact made whatsoever until we come to a later part of the story where she did return to King David as his wife. But Michal's purity was so great and her loyalty to religion and faith so strong that she defied even the orders of the top-level authorities as far as Hebrew law was concerned. She practically authored her own law. She felt that women, women who are on a high level should not be put down. And therefore, despite orders to the contrary, she decided the mitzvah of tefillin is so great and so high that she wore tefillin in defiance of the order of the chief rabbis. The Yomar says, the Yomar discusses as to whether they objected, whether they were afraid to object, or they felt that she was so much an exception that she deserved the privilege, the sacred privilege of wearing tefillin, or some say they did object to her and advised her to stop it. But after she had already worn it and had fulfilled the desire in having this mitzvah editor credit to a degree. At this point, we come to a new state of affairs between King Shaul and King David, which will continue with the next time. The, again, our point here is to show that ones who battle for the sake of Kiddush Hashem, with confidence, with bitachon, and the power of Hashem ruling and deciding battles, 